Everybody got their Bibles open? Ready to go? There was a, a pilot who was flying over the South Pacific, and he noticed smoke coming from one of the deserted islands that he'd never seen. And so as he flew closer, sure enough, there was a man with a, with a great huge beard, went way down to here, tattered clothes, and he's sending a, a smoke signal. And so the pilot decides he's going to try and land on that island. He gets there and he lands. And this man comes over to him, all tattered. He's all excited. He's overjoyed. And he said, man, I've been on this island alone for over 11 years. He goes, I was beginning to lose hope. And as the pilot looked around, he noticed something odd. And he said, okay, if you've been all alone on this island for 11 years, why do you have three huts here? And the man smiled. He said, well, this hut's my home. This is where I live. And he said, the one next to me, this is my church. And he goes, I go to that church every Sunday and I have worship service. So the pilot goes, well, that's pretty neat. That's, that's, that's a really good idea. He goes, well, what's the hut over there? He says, well, that's the church that I used to go to. And I guess I'd say that we're talking about this series of the mighty church. And committing to a church can be kind of difficult. You might like the teaching at one, but you don't like the music, or you like the music at one, or you don't like the people, or, or whatever it is. It's like that churches have different personalities. But it comes down to what we've talked about the last couple of weeks, that there, there's no church that's perfect. Some churches might be a little closer than others. And when we think about the church in our Scripture today in, in Thessalonians, this church fits that category. They're a mighty church. Because unlike other problem-prone churches like Laodicea or Sardis, the church in Thessalonica was an exemplary church. Paul commends them a lot for what they're doing. In chapter 1, if we do a little rehash, chapter 1, Paul praises them for being an energetic church and an elect church and an evangelistic church. He talks about them being an expectant church. And then he goes into chapters 2 and 3 and he describes them, we talked about last week, a scriptural church. They were a suffering church. But he also talks about how they were a strong church. Paul, in short, basically tells this church that they're a mighty church and they're a great example for other churches, like Kersey Church, for us to follow. But as we go to chapter 4 now, Paul writes, if we look at verses, verse 1, he says, As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. This church was only a couple of years old. They were just learning how to live the Christian life. And Paul tells them that they were already doing a pretty good job, but now he's trying to encourage them to keep up the good work and grow even more. So Paul points out three more marks of a mighty church. You see, by the time we get done with this book, you're going to have so many marks of a mighty church. 
You'll be so knowledgeable about church, you won't know what to do. But if we look at, let's, let's go on in our Scripture, if we look at verses 3-8 through eight of chapter 4, we see in these verses, Paul writes this, he says, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. And that in this matter, no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you His Holy Spirit. Now this is kind of an interesting passage, kind of a tough passage in some ways. But first of all, a mighty church avoids lust is what it's talking about. If we look at the Roman Empire back then, the moral climate was terrible. Immorality was just a way of life. The sexual standards in particular were very low. They had problems with with prostitution. It was actually legal. It was widespread. They had pornographic paintings in all of the public places. It was socially acceptable in this climate to basically do anything you wanted to do sexually. Seems like sometimes the more things change, the more they say the same. But think about today. Think about all the stuff around today that promotes unbiblical stuff. I mean, there's all sorts of websites and clubs and all things that you can get involved in that is not healthy. It's not good. Whether it's adultery or fornication or pornography or homosexuality or other sexual sins, all those things remain obstacles to holiness in which God calls us to be holy. To be holy means to be set apart. To be consecrated. In the Old Testament, God implored Israel in Leviticus 19.2, He says, Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So at bottom, God's call to be holy is really a radical, all-encompassing claim for our lives. For all that we do. To be a disciple of Christ requires that we've got to have death to our fallen egocentric self so that we might live for Him. To be holy means that we are and all that we have belongs to God. That every aspect of our life should be shaped and directed towards God. Now holiness is even more than morality. As Paul points out, a life of holiness He mentions sexual things here in this first part of the passage. God created it, but He created it in a a marriage situation, a marriage relationship. But beyond that, to be holy means that we've got to surrender our lives, including all of our relationships and desires to God, because the Scripture says God is holy. So Paul says that's one of the characteristics that this church in Thessalonians had to do. 
The second thing that he tells us is a mighty church avoids lust, but he says it adopts love. Look at verses 9 and 10. We see that a mighty church advances love. Paul continues, he says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family through Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. Now you think of the word love. There's probably millions of songs that encompass the word love. We talk about people writing love letters. There's probably been countless sermons on God's love and love. But we also see that Paul tells here, love is one of the marks of a mighty church. Now, we're, we're not, they didn't cancel the NFL season because it was already over. Alright? But, the Packers were this close. And we have the phrase, maybe next year. But the reason I bring that up is if you're a Packer fan, or if you're just a really good football fan, you will know who Vince Lombardi is. Right? Who knows who Vince Lombardi is? Who cares? It's okay. Go, go back. Um... Anyway, he was the legendary football coach for the Packers. But he was once asked this, what makes a winning team? And here's what he answered. He says, there are a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals and have plenty of discipline, but still don't win the game. He says they lack one ingredient. If you're going to play together as a team, you've got to care for one another. You've got to love each other. He went on to say each player has to be thinking about the next guy and saying to himself, if I don't block that man, my teammate might get his legs broken. I have to do my job well in order that he can do his. He says the difference between mediocrity and greatness is the feeling those guys have for each other. I thought that was pretty good because I think the difference between a mediocre church and a mighty church is the love that we have for one another. John 13.35 Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Now this is kind of an easy Sunday to do this because we're kind of sparse today. But do you really love the person next to you? Behind you? In front of you? I mean, do you genuinely just Love, because Jesus did something the world has never seen before. Jesus created a group that were identified by their love. As Christians, we should be identified by our love. Now, there are countless groups in the world and they identify themselves in a number of different ways. I mean, they can... They can identify their group by, by skin color or by univer, uniforms or by shared interests that they might have. Um, they might have their alma mater that they've got a group for. Uh, one group might have tattoos and piercings. Another group might abstain from eating meat. 
which I guess today we'd call them vegetarians. I was doing King James with never mind. Um, one group might identify themselves as of wearing different kinds of hats. But they would always categorize themselves. I mean, there's all sorts of categories that you could get involved in all sorts of different kinds of groups. But the church is a unique one. Because for the first and only time in history, God created this group of people where the identifying factor is love. Skin color doesn't matter. Native language doesn't matter. Weren't you kind of blessed to hear Jesus loves me in Navajo? That was kind of cool, wasn't it? There are no rules in God's group concerning uniforms, wearing funny hats. Um, basically, followers of Christ were supposed to be identified by our love. Now, here's the catch to this. Loving people is not always easy. Sometimes people can be hard to get along with. Have you ever experienced that? So how do you love people who are hard to love? Well, our typical strategy is I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to strain more. I'm going to dig deeper. I'm going to love that person unless it kills me. And it might. Never know. But when we look at the Bible, the biblical approach is a little bit different. And Paul hints about it when he looks at verse 9. He says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. God's love is amazing. Though we are incomplete, God loves us completely. Though we are imperfect people, God loves us perfectly. Though we may feel lost and without compass, you know, we lost our direction. God gives us direction and He loves us completely. He loves every one of us. He loves every one of us even though we might be flawed. We might be rejected. We might be awkward. We might be sorrowful. We might be broken. So when we accept and we embrace God's love for us, it fills us, it empowers us, Gives us the strength to be able to love one another. That's what I want for Kersey Church more than anything else. I want us to be able to come here. I want you to be able to come here, all of us, and feel completely loved. Because if we love each other as God has loved us, we're going to become a church that is full of love and harmony, drawing people who are starving for love into the presence of Jesus and be able to offer the salvation that He's brought to us. So a mighty church embraces and adopts love. I don't know if I want to say the next one because I've got a word in front of the third point. And it's the word, finally. 
but we're having so much fun. Nobody can go anywhere anymore, right? We're just stuck here. <laughs> What's for lunch? Um, I'm not sure. I'll probably get in trouble for that one. But anyway, um, in our passage, a mighty church also applauds labor. What does Paul write? He says, he says verses 11 and 12, he says, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, you should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. Now what's interesting, for the most part, the Greeks despised manual labor. They liked the slaves to do all the work, the slave labor. And they considered slave labor anything that would make you sweat. So Paul reminds this church here, the Thessalonians, that hard work is an honorable thing. He encourages them to work with their hands so that they could provide for themselves and also bring respect to unbelievers. And so Paul draws a connection between our personal work ethic and the way outsiders view the church. In other words, we can witness through our work. Your attitude and actions testify every day to unchurched co-workers, customers, and clients about Christ. Many people that you are around will never come to a church service. Not like this one anyway, right? Very few people are going to turn their television on or their computers on to watch a Christian program. Probably even fewer are going to pick up a Bible and get to know God personally. But they will interact with you on a daily basis. So if you're the kind of person who does the bare minimum and gripes about everything and does shoddy work, people are not going to respect you and they will not be interested in your relationship with God. But, if you have a positive attitude, if you have a strong work ethic, and you're generally a loving person to these guys, people are going to see that. And they're going to want more. What makes you so positive? Because God values honest work. In fact, God views work worthy of its own engraved commandment. He says, six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. And we all like the second half of that verse. You shall just rest. We got time for another story? 
there was a, a pastor who was basically preaching on the importance of work. And he's uh, talking to the congregation and he's telling them that they should praise God for the opportunity to work for their daily bread. And he says, because the Lord has seen to it that you don't have to work every day. He says, in the Old Testament, Moses said, you get the seventh day off. He said, then Jesus comes around and He says, we worship God on the first day of the week. So He says, work Monday through Friday and you get two days off. And he goes, isn't that great? Isn't that wonderful? And as he's saying this, there's a guy in the back pew pipes up. That sure is nice, Pastor, but if there were five more Jewish kids that could uh, be involved in this, we might not ever have to work again. A friend recently shared this to me online. My first job working was in an orange juice factory, but I got canned because I couldn't concentrate. The next time, I started working in a muffler factory, but that was just too exhausting. So I managed to get a good job as a pool maintenance person, but the work was just too draining. I attempted to be a deli worker, but anyway, I sliced it. I couldn't cut the mustard. Then I worked as a lumberjack, but I couldn't hack it, so they just gave me the axe. And my last job was working at Starbucks. But I had to quit because it was just the same old grind. We would probably love to work less and less. Most people dread Monday, they dream of Friday, and they drag through those days in between. But I think if we will start to view our week a little bit different, if we will view our week as every day that God, that I go to work or every day that I'm alive, God has given me an opportunity to share Christ. Whether it's my coworkers or my customers or neighbors or whatever it will be, and I think it will change your outlook on how you interact with people around you. God honors honest work. And so shouldn't our work honor God? So as we look at these mighty marks of the church, and we're going to have a few more next week, it kind of comes down to, are we committed to a life of holiness? And do we really love? Does your actions and your attitude win the admiration of other people? Because you see, the church is only as mighty as the people that go there. And if we're going to be a mighty church, it starts by being a mighty Christian. So next week we're going to continue through what Paul has to say. But maybe right now, those are all the points we've done so far. Maybe you're not feeling so mighty right now. Maybe you've been wrestling with some sin in your life. Maybe you've been struggling to love a person. 
Or maybe you've realized that you haven't been the best example to the people around you. And I guess what I'm asking you today is whatever struggle that maybe we're going through right now, I think today's the time that we give it to God and we move on becoming the people that He's called us to be. So if you have any struggles, or maybe maybe you're here and you've never accepted Christ into your heart and life, I would say right now is the time. And even as I have a prayer, you can just pray, Lord, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. But it really comes down to all the struggles that we have, anything that we're addictions, whatever we might have, we'll be able to give those to God right now, and He gives us the strength to move on. Plus, look around. We've got all these people that love each other. You know? Who thinks they're the most loving person in, in this room? Everybody's laughing. What's that about? God loves every one of us. And let's give back to God our lives to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You this morning that we can be here and, and really at a time that there's a lot of people wanting answers. And when we look at this uh, coronavirus and all the scariness that the media and everybody's playing it up to, Lord, there's elements of it that are kind of alarming. But Lord, we have peace in You. We know that You are love, You care for us, and You have our best interests at heart. And so Lord, I just pray right now, whatever struggles we might have, if there's someone here who has never accepted You into their heart and life, I just pray right where they're sitting that they will just ask You to come in. And Lord, I just pray that we will be known around our community as friendly, loving people and that it allows people to want to be here too to hear the Gospel. And so Lord, give us the strength that we need to make it through each day. But Lord, allow us to have a positive attitude and be excited that we're living because of Your amazing grace. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.